This is a HeadGum Original. I want to tell you about a show I think you're going to love. The Kelsey Ayer TV show on radio. From HeadGum Studios, it's a scripted, limited-run comedy podcast, dreamt up, written, and performed by who else but Kelsey Ayer. The show is a fictional account of the Kelsey Ayer TV show, a classic American talk show that, due to a string of bad luck, has just been canceled. After licking their wounds, the team behind the TV show decide to take destiny into their own hands and resurrect it through the magic of radio. Think The Muppets meets Larry Sanders. If you love The Adventure Zone, this is a show for you. So join Kelsey, Bronco, Sir Sheldon, Amy, Sally, and Benjamin each week as they attempt to take the hijinks their TV audience knew and loved to a fully audio experience. Will it work? Will the gang find a way to work it all out and grab the hearts and minds of an audience purely through audio format? Only time will tell. Subscribe to The Kelsey Ayer Show on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I've not caught up entirely. So the last episode I listened to was episode seven of season one. Ooh, okay. I don't know if there's been developments in the story since episode seven that I should know about. I'll leave you unspoiled for the episodes you haven't caught up to yet. But I talked to Seth Rogen. Okay. And he specifically mentions your name at one point. Okay. He auditioned for the Elijah Wood part in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And he said that was the one part where he looked back and he thought, I would have liked to have been in that movie. That's amazing. (laughs) Oh, my God. This is something I've been looking forward to for a while. And there was a point where I wasn't sure it was actually going to happen. In this episode, I will be joined by the actor who played the title character in the 1994 Oscar winner for Best Picture, Forrest Gump. For real. I will be talking to the actor who played the role of Josh Baskin in the 1988 movie Big. Okay, some of you are thinking, ooh, this is it. He finally got Tom Hanks on the podcast. Others among you have already cracked my code, and you realize, oh, I know what he's doing here. He's actually talking about two different actors, neither of whom is Tom Hanks. But even some of the people who have figured out where I'm going with this might be momentarily baffled as to why I might be talking to actor Elijah Wood, beyond him just being a fan of the podcast. I'm assuming you still haven't managed to actually secure the casting director that had let you go. No, we we have tried mightily. And uh, I just figured at this point she would have like there's enough steam behind and legitimacy clearly with what it is that you're doing that it's not about examining what she did or didn't do right or wrong. It's not, you know, this isn't even really about trying to like write the past for you. It's really an exploration and and it, and it I, I just figured at a certain point she would see that and kind of go, oh, it's not he's not trying to like, make amends with the past and she just wants to have an understanding you know i'm desperate to hear what she has to say now i'm always down to hear that anyone's interested in the show but the real reason i'm talking to elijah is because of a movie he starred in almost 30 years ago in which his character mike was portrayed as an adult by tom hanks it's an uncredited cameo in the film radio flyer which came out in 1992 on imdb he is listed as playing older mike you must have had an awareness that an adult was going to also be playing your character. Yes, and an awareness, obviously, who that adult was once he was cast. But you would have seen you would have seen him in what, like Turner and Hooch or Splash, or I'm trying to think what movies at at that age. So no, I'd seen him in Big Splash. I may not have seen yet. So you've not only had you already seen him, he'd already seen him play the adult version of a of a child actor. That's funny. Yeah. So I'll admit it. My initial impulse to do this was, well, if I can't get Tom Hanks, I'll get the kid versions of Tom Hanks. I thought it would be a funny concept for an episode, kind of like the Muppet Babies. But as I started to track down the actors that have portrayed younger versions of Tom Hanks, the thought occurred to me. If the prospect of being directed by him seemed so pivotal to me years ago, how would it have affected an actor to share a role with him? I mean, just acting opposite Tom Hanks is one thing, but collaborating on a consistent, cohesive character? Is that a life-altering experience? Or just another gig? (laughs) ¶¶ 
This is Dead Eyes, a podcast about one actor's quest to find out why Tom Hanks fired him from a small role in the 2001 HBO miniseries Band of Brothers. My name is Connor Ratliff. I'm an actor and comedian. 20 years ago, I was fired by Tom Hanks. The reason I was told at the time is that he saw my audition tape and thought that I had dead eyes. You were cast. Everyone approved you. How can you fucking plan for that? How can they have planned for it? It, It's a very specific scenario for that to not work out. And that's the short version. I'm curious what your memories are of making that movie. Vivid. Yeah. The, the memories of making the film are vivid. Not terribly vivid in regards to Tom Hanks, because his, his wraparound piece was shot separately. Tom Hanks has two scenes in Radio Flyer, framing the story at the beginning and the end, and he serves as the narrator throughout. It is a big deal. You can't just say, I promise, and then forget about it. It only takes a second to say, I promise, but the commitment can last the rest of your life. He and Elijah don't share any screen time together for obvious reasons, as their scenes take place in different decades. So I think we met, but very briefly. And and my memory is that he wasn't cast right away. I want to say that we had started shooting the film and he hadn't been cast yet. I could be wrong, but that's my memory. As far as the experience of shooting it, it was me and Joe Mazzello joined at the hip for the shoot as these two brothers were in the film and all of our time was spent together. There there are a couple of really formative memories working on that film. George Lucas came to set to visit, which was completely mind-blowing. And I met Steven Spielberg as well. So those were two really significant moments for a nine slash 10 year old. The film is about two brothers, played by Elijah and the even younger Joseph Mazzello, who would go on to star in Jurassic Park the following year. Their mom, played by Lorraine Bracco, gets remarried, and they find themselves living in the suburbs with an abusive, alcoholic stepfather. It's a pretty intense movie in parts, though you wouldn't guess it from the poster or the trailer, which make it seem like a more light-hearted film than it actually is. When fear becomes courage, dreams take flight. Radio Flyer, powered by imagination. It turns out that the attempt to give a more nostalgic tone to fairly dark subject matter was not an afterthought, but an ongoing process that involved a substantial amount of firing and hiring. David Mickey Evans, who wrote it, he wrote Radio Flyer and was directing it. And I had actually auditioned for that version of it with him attached to direct and didn't get it. And... Months go by, and David McEvans was let go off the film for reasons I'm not entirely sure why. And they brought in Richard Donner to direct, and then they started the casting process over again. This was a case where the, the basically the full cast of the family mom and the two brothers were shooting and then let go. The whole thing was started over again. Maybe less painful in the sense that it's all happening at once. It's almost like the production gets shut down rather than it being a personal, you're not working out. It weirdly reflects one of the beats in the movie, which is when the family moves to town, there's the line about some other family that lived in the house. Oh, yeah. And the neighborhood kids are like, you kicked them out of their house. It was sort of Yeah. Yeah, there is like a funny beat in there where they the other neighborhood kids are kind of mad at them because other kids lived in the house and the new family moving in is perceived as like usurpers somehow. Oh, that's so funny. And it literally happened with the movie family. Yeah, it literally did. David Mickey Evans' original Radio Flyer screenplay was more fantastical, with real monsters, talking animals, and a hovering red wagon that could actually fly. The studio wanted a more grounded film, and a byproduct of their changes was an ambiguous ending that was, in effect, much darker. Quick spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Radio Flyer and you think you might want to, this is your chance to skip ahead about two and a half minutes, because Elijah is about to straight up tell you how the movie ends. Because effectively, the end of the movie is Bobby dying. When he takes off in that Radio Flyer... There isn't a successful flight. 
it's essentially suicide, which is really heavy. So the addition of Mike as an adult with Hanks playing that character was added as a means of carrying on the fantasy of Bobby did get away. He has traveled to all these places in his radio flyer and kind of keeping this fantasy alive for the viewer so they're not kind of hit over the head with something so terribly tragic as as his death. But I think it's inferred. You can kind of interpret that ending any way you want. So the the task of Hanks in the film is to kind of keep the fantasy of his brother alive, whether or not that really happened or, or not. He's playing it in a way where there's a, there's a lightness in that he's he's talking to these uh, these kids about his life, but there's also a little hint of some sadness. There's a hint of something there that allows the viewer to take the ending one of two ways. I could imagine someone hearing you describe the ending and saying, no, 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 it ends with him successfully flying around the world because we saw the postcards and we saw um, that there will be some people who will be very angry with your your (laughs) harsh interpretation. I'm sure. Have you ever crossed paths with Tom Hanks in the decades since Radio Flyer? So he produced a documentary for a museum, a World War II museum. And the the documentary was a series of letters, if I remember correctly, written by servicemen at the time. And it, there were many people reading uh, letters from servicemen. So I was cast to be a specific soldier. And if I, if I remember correctly, that kind of came through direct slash indirect from him. So I wasn't, I didn't audition for it. I was asked to, to do it. I was asked to be a part of it and lend my voice to this museum that hadn't opened yet. And I feel like I even, I even got a, a thank you letter from him that I believe was signed. Were you ever under consideration for Band of Brothers? I was in New Zealand. We were shooting rings at the time. I was 18. You would have been draft age, certainly. Right, yeah. You know? Yeah. But there's a possibility that sometimes with screen age, it's a little different that you might have read as like... I definitely looked younger than 18 or 19. I also didn't audition for The Pacific when that came up either. But wasn't... I feel like Joseph Mazzello was in The Pacific. He, he was in The Pacific. It's like a small town, isn't it? It really, once you know five people, you have a connection to everybody. Of course, while Elijah might be the most well-known actor to play a young Tom Hanks, Radio Flyer is probably among the most obscure Tom Hanks film performances. One of the least obscure Tom Hanks performances would be the one Elijah had already seen him in just a few years earlier. Josh Baskin in Big, directed by Penny Marshall and co-starring a young man named David Moscow. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for doing this. It's so, it's so oh, nice to meet pleasure. you. My pleasure. Your story is funny. David plays Josh Baskin in the key opening scenes of the movie Big. We get to know him. We see him make his wish on the Zoltar machine. I wish I were big. His performance lays the groundwork so that when we eventually see Tom Hanks, the star of the film... We never forget who he really is deep down. He's literally playing you at the same age as you, which makes it a, a, a distinction within that subgroup. Right. What do you recall about the process of auditioning for Big? My first audition was for Penny. Tom was not Josh Baskin at that point. It was De Niro. This was my second audition. I was like a little kid from the Bronx, no clue about anything. Went into what I think was the basement of a community center in the Bronx and there were like a bunch of kids crawling around on a carpeted floor and Penny was sitting in a chair and she'd like point at people and be like, what's your name? Where are you from? I babbled my way through that and then didn't hear anything for six months um, because I think they were seeing me as the best friend, as Billy, not as mm-hmm. the young Josh at that point because I don't look like De Niro at all. So six months went by, I went off and 
did some other stuff, started a career as a child actor, and then got a call that they, I guess Penny had like, when Hanks came on board, she was like, give me that kid from the Bronx. And so they hired me. Unlike the bookend cameo for Radio Flyer, Hanks' process on Big involved a lot of immersive study. Because he wasn't playing a decades later grown-up version of Josh Baskin, he was playing the same kid trapped in an adult body. And he wanted to get the details just right. David wasn't just an actor. They were studying him. It wasn't sitting around a table and reading. It was like hanging out in Penny's office with her and her assistant and them kind of like throwing stuff at you. And you're 12 and, and it's fun. So they give you silly string and what would you do with this? And uh, if you're going to eat like a little corn, what are you going to do with this? And then Hanks came out with my friends and just followed us around for like three weeks on and off with a video recorder. So some of the mannerisms that end up in the movie are actually more of my friends than me. Like there's moments where you're like, oh, that's Ernest and that's David Cannon. And Did you feel like you were being studied or did it just feel like hanging out? Oh, it was a blast. Like we went to baseball games, we went to amusement parks. Like they kind of just wanted you to, uh, to just see if there was anything they could mine. I'm looking back on it now. At the time it was just fun. It was just yeah. like uh, the whole making of it for me just felt like magic, like almost as magical as the movie turned out to be. But like, I mean, we shot the carnival scene, the Zoltar moment. They had a real carnival. I was the only person who could ride on any ride I wanted. <laughs> I could go up and get cotton candy. I had no, no money. I'd just walk up there and some second AD would be following me. And it was just, it was the first time I think I was able to stay up all night. And that was kind of what the whole process was all the way through like the rap party the rap party was at fao Swartz. they took over the whole place there were jugglers and like people eating fire my best friend and i hung out with a juggler all night and learned how to juggle and we walked away with like our own like little pianos to dance on how aware were you of who tom hanks was when you were working on it i came from a very radical left-wing household we didn't really watch tv they brought the tv down like once a week to watch a half hour of mash so I think before Big, I had seen three movies. I had seen Fantasia. I had seen Raiders. And that was at camp. And, um, oh, my goodness. Like Old Yeller. <laughs> so I didn't know Hanks. I didn't know films. I didn't know Hanks. So Tom, I was just kind of like got to hang out with this guy who wanted to play, like wanted to be a kid with me and my friends. And I think the first time that there was ever recognition of, like, the world that we were in was the same crew that worked on Big that also was doing Working Girl right after Big wrapped. So in order to do some pickups, some wild lines, I went to the Working Girl set, and they asked me if I wanted to meet Indiana Jones. And I went upstairs and met Harrison Ford and was super quiet and very nervous. Um, and, but that was the first moment that I really realized, oh, wait a minute, this is that. How did it affect you when the film came out? By the time it came out, I continued to act. I was going back and forth from New York to LA, and I was actually hanging out a lot with Jared from the movie. He was my only friend in Los Angeles. So I think for kids in Orange County who would like go to the mall and like run into Billy and Josh hanging out in the mall, <laughs> it must have just blown their minds because uh, that was sort of like our every weekend. I think it was probably harder for my parents navigating how to deal with this, something that was so foreign to them, where like we'd be standing outside of a restaurant, I would have just like thrown a tantrum in there as like any 13 year old. And my mom would like pulled me out of the restaurant and she's yelling at me on the street. And then someone walks by and is like, can I have your autograph? And then we stop, we become kind of professional. I'm like, nice to meet you, I'll give you my autograph. And then, uh, then she goes back to like yelling at me. So I think that that was the hard part and trying to support what I wanted to do and deal with this underlying belief that like Hollywood was going to destroy me as a parent. There's maybe like a brief gap in the mid nineties in your like IMDb, but you're working, you know, you had three movies the year that big came out and you're immediately on a sitcom, you're a re series regular on a sitcom. And then you're, it looks like you're working pretty regularly for a while. And then there's a little gap in the nineties, but then from then on, it seems like you're pretty steadily like making the transition from being a child actor to an adult 
actor. Like on IMDb, it may seem like there is a this like linear path that like is very connected, but a lot of those, a lot of the in between stuff don't pay very well or. You work two days in a year. Like, it looks like a movie, but you work two days in a year, right? And so you're constantly asking why. Why isn't this working? Why did last week it work, but this week it doesn't? It took me a long time to come to peace with this, but there was something that my dad told me, and it actually involves Tom. He said, the mountain never ends for anyone. Tom Hanks looks at Tom Cruise and wishes his movies were making a billion dollars. And Tom Cruise looks at Tom Hanks and wishes he has three Academy Awards. And it never stops. So you just have to be okay with the ride that you're on. I think it was, it was watching like maybe it was a DVD supplement or there was some behind the scenes thing on Big. It's something I would have definitely seen after I had gone through my uh, Band of Brothers experience. And you were talking about how you were doing a shot in Big where you were maybe like taking out the trash or something and you were having mm. to do lots of takes. And you had an experience that I heard it and I was like, oh, that's the kind of nice experience I wanted to have. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, it was my first day. It's two seconds in the movie. It's while credits are rolling. Uh, Mercedes is like, Josh, take the garbage out. And I think it's even like her off screen. And I'm like, take the garbage out, take the garbage out. And I'm walking and then put it in the garbage can. There, I took the garbage out. And I think I was like at 37 takes on my first day. Oh my gosh, this is a disaster, right? And Penny, while having a heart of gold, She's a New Yorker. She's like, Moscow, get your act together. And, and Tom walked over and was like, kid, don't worry about it. Yesterday I did 60 takes. And I was like, oh, okay. And then he explained that she likes to have every movie she could possibly have in the editing room. And so she wants to be able to make her movie there. And then I was like, thank you. Who knows if he hadn't said that, you know what I mean? Like maybe you would have gotten so in your head that... It would have screwed you up. Actors are fragile, yes, but 12-year-old actors are fragile. I think 12-year-old actors are more resilient than than 24-year-old actors. David is less than a year older than me, so I wondered if maybe he had a Band of Brothers audition story. And he kind of did. Not for Band of Brothers, but for its aforementioned 2010 follow-up, The Pacific. And it was one of the fastest auditions I've ever had. <laughs> so when you were talking about yours, I was like, oh, I think I might have had a moment like that. Um, but that's, for me, he and I are friendly, so it was different. Like he, I guess in some ways, it wasn't like this guy from up above looking down and being like, you are not worthy. For me, I walked out like pissed at myself, but also laughing at sort of how that fell flat, right? Because also like I went in there and he's like, so did you get married yet? Because I last time I'd run into him, I was engaged. And, and then he had turned to Rita and been like, David Moscow is engaged. I'm old. And she's like, I know, Tom, I know. So then I saw him. He was like, did you get married? And I was like, no, that uh, we dodged that bullet there. And so there was more of like a jovial thing. And then I shat the bed with the audition and walked out. And in the hallway was like, wow. Do you really think it was a, a not a great audition? So just me as an auditioner. I either come in correct and I do a great job and there's like a good chance I'm going to get this or I blaze of glory like how is this kid still in the business kind of thing. It was the the charisma, the, the charm uh, would get you through and you played like three notes, three or four notes, but they were good notes. They worked. People liked you. So I never I never trained, but you know, would it have benefited me um, or was I just too sort of like like a jazz player? as opposed to sort of someone in a classical orchestra, right? Currently, David hosts a TV series he created with his wife called From Scratch. It's both a travel show and a cooking show, where he goes all over the world to prepare various recipes, but only after personally hunting, gathering, diving, and even growing, whatever it takes 
to get all the necessary ingredients. I'm David Moscow. You might know me as a child actor, but it's not my whole story. I grew up in New York, but I spent my... I do actually find that there's some similarities in, in, very, in a very broad sense that your show is sort of you looking inward. It starts from a place of like, I want to get back to this way. But then you look out to the world for answers. It is very similar. I'd never, I didn't even put that together till just now. That it's so true. Like what you're doing and what I'm doing are investigating the world, but how also we got here and where do we want to go from here? And I, I saw an interview where you were talking about um, a delicacy that you were served in South Africa. The the sheep's eye. You have eaten dead eyes. <laughs> I have. I have eaten dead eyes. A dead eye. A half a dead eye. I'm a notoriously picky eater. So in that sense, I'm, I'm very envious of anyone who is able to be bold with their palate and take risks. But I think it would be fun to watch you try this. Oh, I know. Like, I think be. it would be fun to put you and then record it. Like, that's part of it. Like, yes, I, dealing I, with this. I am very aware of how fun it would be for everyone else to see yeah, me try exactly. these things. I uh, already want to bring you on the show. You should join <laughs> me on one of the episodes. I think it would just be amusing. Dead Eyes will be right back. Have you ever seen the sitcom Bosom Buddies? It ran for two seasons from 1980 to 1982 and starred Tom Hanks and Peter Scolari as Kip and Henry, two single guys whose apartment building is suddenly demolished and they have to pretend to be women, Buffy and Hildegard, in order to rent an apartment they can afford in a building which only allows female tenants. I have only vague memories of seeing the show as a child, but I recently watched a little bit of the first episode, and it begins with a shot of a wrecking ball smashing into the side of an apartment building. We cut to inside, and we see Kip and Henry waking up, startled that the building they live in is being demolished with them still inside it. They scurry out of the room, frantically grabbing a few of their belongings, but the thing that caught my attention in all this chaos was their two very uncomfortable-looking beds with flimsy, cheap mattresses. I don't know where Kip and Henry are in 2021, but I hope for their sakes that even if they're still struggling, they have upgraded their mattresses to the affordable comfort offered by Helix Sleep. Helix has a quiz you can take online. It's really quick, takes about two minutes. And they can tell you exactly which mattress is right for your body type and sleep preferences. Everybody is different, and Helix knows that, so they have several different kinds of mattresses to choose from. They have soft, medium, and firm mattresses, mattresses to cool you down if you sleep hot, and even a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size folks. I took the Helix quiz, and I was matched with the Midnight Luxe mattress, because I wanted something that would accommodate tossing and turning, and was neither too soft nor too firm. It feels great. Whether you're a Kip or a Henry or a Buffy or a Hildegard, Helix Sleep will be able to give you the kind of mattress you need. So if you're looking for a mattress, it's really simple. You take the quiz, you order the mattress that you're matched to, and the mattress comes right to your door shipped for free. You don't ever need to go to a mattress store again. And you don't have to take my word for it. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. Just go to helixsleep.com deadeyes. Take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it. But you will. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com deadeyes. That's up to $200 off all mattress orders plus two free pillows at helixsleep.com deadeyes. This episode is sponsored by Skillshare, an online learning community that offers classes in all kinds of things. Writing, illustration, graphic design, filmmaking, music. So many different categories that you're bound to find more than a few areas of interest that can help you figure out how to express your creativity. At a time when I think we all need that maybe more than ever. Explore new skills or help to hone the ones you already have with affordable classes taught by experts who really know what they're talking about. One class that caught my eye, 
writing essays, making the personal universal, taught by Sari Batten. My podcast couldn't be more specific to my own life experience. And when I first told people the idea, there were some who said, well, that's very niche. Sari's class is all about how you can take the stories that are uniquely yours and tell them in a way that makes them feel universal. You'll learn how to sift through your memories and find the stories that are most worth telling and how to write them in ways that are compelling and relatable. Her class is 16 videos adding up to about 40 minutes total. And there are so many other classes that can help you figure out where to go from there or even to discover a totally different way to express yourself creatively. Maybe you want to make your own podcast. They have classes for that. They can help guide you through the whole process. Maybe you want to write and draw a comic book or record a song or create a series of watercolor paintings. Even if you're not sure what you might want to do, the great thing is you can sample a whole bunch of classes and see what feels right for you. Take as many classes as you want. Skillshare is easy to try and it's super affordable. An annual subscription is less than $10 a month. Explore your creativity at Skillshare.com forward slash Deadeyes and get a free trial of premium membership. Go there, look around, try a few classes. It might be just the thing you're looking for in 2021. And trying it out won't cost you anything. That's Skillshare.com forward slash Deadeyes for a free trial of premium membership. Did you say you go by Connor? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I do. Do you ever go by Michael or is it always Connor? I, I answer to Michael when I'm called Michael, but the rest of the time, <laughs> yeah, I just go by Connor. It's when, it's actually when I got the part or when I was trying out for Forrest Gump when I was a kid, I had always gone by Connor, but I was like a big fan of like Michael J. Fox. And I thought that right. telling him my name was Michael C. Humphreys sounded a lot cooler. So it became Michael Connor Humphreys from then on as far as the professional setting goes. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I, I know people who are also named Connor, so I'm just going to call you Connor, and I, I don't think it'll be confusing. All right. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Michael Connor Humphreys played the role of young Forrest Gump in the pivotal first 20 minutes of the movie. We first see Tom Hanks sitting on the now iconic bench, box of chocolates on his lap, feather at his feet. But he doesn't sound like any character Tom Hanks had ever played up to that point. Because just like with Big, Tom Hanks studied the younger actor he was sharing the role with, and used him as inspiration for how his own version of the character would move and talk. If you watch the early screen tests for the film, Tom Hanks originally had a totally different way of speaking. Sounds nothing like what we think of as Forrest Gump. And action. Forrest? Hi. Hi. I brought you something. Mama sent me $10, and I'd like to spend it all on you. You know, they cast me because they liked me for whatever reason, and they were going to have, they were going to teach me to be Tom Hanks. And then at some point, Bob Zemeckis and Tom Hanks realized that it would just be much easier for him to just learn to be me. So, in a weird way, the character of Forrest Gump, as portrayed by Tom Hanks, that's eight year old me in a man's body, which makes sense for him to be like the kind of affable, lovable, foolish guy, right? They saw, they liked something about my quirky eight-year-old self that he was like, well, I'm just going to turn that into the adult version of Forrest Gump. And that's also, of course, the accent. I spoke like that when I was eight years old because I was from, you know, deep Mississippi. My mama says my back's um, crooked like a question mark. These are going to keep me, a, these are going to make me a strays and error. They're my magic shoes. I'm Jenny. I'm Forrest, Forrest Gump. While the rigid flashback structure of Radio Flyer and the magical conceit of Big had meant that Elijah and David never had the chance to share a scene with Tom, the elegant style of Forrest Gump's storytelling allowed Connor the opportunity to appear with him in the same unbroken shot. Twice. But neither of these things made it into the film. Tom and I had two scenes together that were supposed to be transition scenes from child to adult, and they ended up cutting those out but we filmed those together. But that was also still there in that Gump House setting. Like you'd be in a shot and then the camera would move over and it would be like time is shifting and it would pan to him? It was me and Hannah Hall who played young Jenny and we were running around and we get to this pond and I was supposed to throw a rock into the water and then you'd see the ripples and then when the ripples disappear, it's Tom and Robin Wright, right? It, the thing is that day, there were times because I was eight years old, you know, I know I was like basically a little goddamn terrorist sometimes to like people on set because, you know, they just had to control these kids running around doing stuff. And one day while we were shooting that scene, Bob Zemeckis, you know, who's a great director, but he's also a very stern director. Like he's very professional. He likes everything to be where he needs it to be right when it needs to be there. But being eight years old, I would not hesitate to like 
not so much talk back to him, but you know, he would tell me what to do and I'd immediately be like, well, why don't I do this instead? And everybody on set would just go quiet, you know, because normally if that happens with an adult, like you're gone, you know? Right. But yeah, they, they had to tolerate the kids acting like kids sometimes when we were doing that kind of stuff. But I think I may have been a little difficult every now and then <laughs> for them. When Forrest Gump was released, there was a two-year period where Connor was basically traveling the world, promoting the film as it was coming out in different regions. Were you at the Oscars? No, no. So I did not go to the Oscars. We were never expecting that we would would go. And uh, and then actually Tom gave me an Oscar. It's not an Academy Oscar, but it's a Tom Hanks Oscar. It's the one that he sent to me after the movie did so well. He had an Oscar made for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's much rarer than a real Oscar. Yeah, I know, I know. I actually, I, I, yeah, I kind of like that a little bit more just because you, you probably never find another one of those. But that goes with the whole nicest guy in Hollywood tale. Yeah, that's very sweet. <laughs> the next time Connor crossed paths with Tom Hanks was several years later. And the timing of that meeting is a pretty weird coincidence. The first time I saw him after Forrest Gump was I went to the set of Castaway and actually called up with him and Bob Zemeckis one day. So I think I literally saw him two or three days before or after you saw him. And that was like the one time we each ran into, the, the two Connors ran into him on like the same day, basically, is what it comes down to. Oh, wow. That's the only time I've really seen him in person since then. It was probably on the same week as you. <laughs> when you saw him, did he still have the big beard? No, he, he was shooting the scenes where he had just gotten back home and he was in the house with Helen Hunt. Oh, right. So it was. We You saw the exact same look, which if you didn't know... Yeah, because well, he looked radically different from what he looked like when I saw him as a kid, you know? Yeah, I think I think I actually ran into him probably about the same week you did, sounds like, or very close to it. At that point, it had been more than five years since Forrest Gump, a whirlwind experience for Connor. When it was over, he had decided not to follow it up by pursuing more acting jobs. Has your relationship to the film always been a positive one or has it shifted sort of dependent? Because, you know, you went through presumably adolescence and then into adulthood and... I'm trying to think how to put it. I know other people that have only been in one movie, um, and I know other people that did one movie then when they were a kid, and then they kind of just moved on, you know, kind of had a regular life after that. But I don't know many people that were in one movie as a kid that was such a big movie. Uh, to quote James Cameron, I was watching an, inter an interview with him where he was talking about uh, Eddie Furlong played John Connor in Terminator 2, and Cameron was pointing out how Surely this was a big left turn in his life and he never expected anything like this. But at the same time, kids have a remarkable ability to just deal with whatever's thrown at them, right? Yeah. They haven't learned how the world's supposed to be. So they're like, I guess it can just be like this. And that's how it was for me as a child. When I did Forrest Gump, I just took it. And then the older I got... And as the anxieties of an adult set in and insecurities and all that stuff, then I started to really kind of have a more negative social situation where, where I, you know, by the time I was a teenager, I was starting to get really sick of that preceding me wherever I went. I should, you would have thought I'd been the coolest kid in school, but instead I was like the most geekiest alienated kid in school because I just couldn't relate to anybody and they couldn't relate to me. So it was a weird thing to deal with you know, as I grew up. Well, and especially I would think to have to process all that, it's not like you were continuing to make movies. You sort of had this uh, brief experience at that point, and then you were, a not, you know, just a normal person again. Uh, that seems like it would be very confusing. It's, it's well, and it's basically impossible. I mean, you know, <laughs> you can go back to having a regular life, but like, you'll, that's always going to be there. People would always ask me about the movie, and they always ended the conversation with, what are you doing now? And since I had not done anything else and had not tried to, I never had a good answer. And as time went on, I started to really feel like I was like a disappointment. If you were in that, how could you possibly throw that opportunity away and all that? And the thing is, I was eight years old. I didn't care when I was eight years old about what could come of it afterwards, because I was just a kid. I think in a way, it kind of forced me to grow up differently, you know? or maybe even grow up a little quicker. In 2004, Connor enlisted in the United States Army. Shortly after, he was deployed to Iraq for 18 months. Yeah, I had several reasons, but one of them I was like, you know, this may be the only other thing that I ever do of any significance. There's a war going on, go be in a real life war. And like, I was like, that might be the last thing I do that'll ever match having been in a movie, you know, if I ever achieve anything else. So that kind of motivated me 
a little bit in kind of a negative way, if you think about it, but it ended up being a good experience. It did redefine me, you know, to where like after I came out of the army, I felt like, yeah, I had a new sense of purpose. And that's also, I kind of realized I hadn't felt that since I was a kid too. And I, now that I've had both experiences, I know that the only two things I've ever done that have seemed meaningful have either been acting or serving in the military. And then of course, you know, there are the parallels, you know, having shown up in Iraq after all the Vietnam scenes and stuff in Forrest Gump. What was it like in terms of the reality versus the, the, the images that you had in your head from, from culture? Yeah, as far, yeah, obviously with culture, like when I was a kid, I was, you know, I loved like Top Gun, James Bond movies, military themed stuff. And, you know, had always been interested in the military because of that, mainly because of movies. And um, doing Forrest Gump, I was present for the Vietnam scenes when they were shooting them. And like I watched them put the special effects together. And like there's one scene in Forrest Gump where there's this giant napalm explosion where he's carrying Bubba through the jungle. Yeah. I actually pushed the button that set that off. You know, they were just letting me have fun and all that when I was a kid. So I saw war through the Hollywood perspective, like how they actually make it on film and got, you know, an appreciation for that. And uh, going into the army and going to Iraq, I, you know, I really did have this like idea of like, I'm going to go shoot big machine guns and drive tanks and, you know, call in helicopters and basically see all this really cool, amazing stuff from like a, you know, engineering perspective and all that. Wasn't thinking too much about what the reality of combat was actually going to be like. And then I got there and uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, God, um, Going, being exposed to war is, it's, you're being exposed to the harsh reality that is the human condition. I mean, if you ever fire a gun, if you ever go hunting or something, you shoot a gun and you can just imagine what that's like coming back at you if you're on the receiving end of that. Once you actually get on the receiving end of that stuff, it's just, uh, I mean, I don't really know if there's words to describe it, but uh, I think more than anything else, it was numbing. I think when you get there in combat, the way you deal with trauma is by desensitizing yourself so that you don't experience the trauma anymore. I think that's what a lot of soldiers are trained to do. And that in itself creates problems that when you come back, you're now desensitized to everything. And I had this issue where when I came back from the military, I, I, I learned to deal with it while I was there to where I wasn't scared. I wasn't worried about dying. I didn't freak out when bad things happened too much. But then when I came back to the regular world, I found that like, I wasn't very happy, but I wasn't very sad, wasn't really angry, just wasn't experiencing much in the way of emotions or personal relationships anymore because I had just gotten too good at like shutting myself down while I was there. So like I have these memories of it. I remember everything that happened while I was there. And even to this day though, it's like, I saw really terrible stuff. And I feel like even now, 15 years later, it still hasn't hit me yet. I feel like it's still coming at me in a way. Connor completed his military service in 2008. He's currently teaching English online to students all over the world. Most of them are younger, so he didn't initially think too much about being recognized. Well, originally I was able to be anonymous, but the, the company that I contract with actually started promoting themselves with me and actively mm -hmm. telling client parents, you know. And so now right. now usually I get a lot of parents and kids. They, well, the kids are too young to know Forrest Gump. You know, if it's a five-year-old kid, they've not really seen it, but their parents have. And I've also discovered how amazingly popular the movie is around the world, like just all over the place. In China, Argentina, just, just a number of countries where I've talked to people and stuff. Uh, but they all know it. It's just, just, you know, a huge thing everywhere. And I've seen interviews with you where you've talked about getting back into acting. Well, really, I'd always assumed uh, after Forrest Gump that the only reason they cast me in that role was because of my accent. And then in recent years, I've watched interviews with people, including Tom, who have talked about what actually went on in the process and were like, you know, well, we actually, you know, we, they cast me as a actor originally before they ever even got to the whole, oh, we can use this kid's voice and everything. And that, along with some other things, made me think, okay, maybe I should at least give this a shot. And, uh, yeah, just in the past, like, two or three years, I've started taking acting classes and, you know, re you know, actively pursuing it. How does it feel when you act now compared to how it felt when you were a kid? When I was a kid, I literally just remember doing what they told me to do, you know? It was just as simple as, like, well, you know, you have all this confidence when you're a kid and innocence and everything, and, like, I just 
didn't hesitate whenever they said do this, I would do it. And then they would adjust it. And it was a very natural feeling process. And then as an adult, I don't know, there's a lot more development going on now. Like I have to really work on myself, I feel like, whereas I didn't have to when I was a kid. Because now I've got all the baggage of 20 years of life that I have to work out in the process of doing roles. But uh, I've definitely needed some form of therapy after being in the army. And I feel like acting simultaneously works as therapy, (laughs) you know, while also potentially being a profession. So I think I've benefited from it a lot. Although Connor hasn't actually met with Tom Hanks in person since that visit during the final days of Castaway, he has been in touch. When I started to think about going back into acting, I had no way of getting in contact with him. So while I was in Los Angeles, I I think I went to his publicist's office and I left like a little handwritten sticky note and was like, hey, it's me. Here's my email. Told him to pass it along. And then he eventually emailed me back and I've kind of chatted with him ever since then. So now when he does Forrest Gump interviews, he immediately brings me up and starts talking about me being in the army and all that stuff. And I can literally hear him relaying information I relayed to him every now and then, which is kind of surreal. Forrest Gump, the famous voice that you use as as Forrest, it came from a specific person. Young Michael Connor Humphreys, who played young Forrest Gump. He was a very young man. He's now a veteran. He served in Afghanistan. Uh, I have to think that that is a kind of a special source of pride for him, that you have this actual connection to your, your service that may have, in a, in a small way, have been influenced by working on the movie. Yeah, he's always had an interest in, in you know, all of my good army stories and everything. I mean, I would love eventually to take what I've actually experienced in the war and somehow bring that to film as best as I can. I would like, or if not me, I would like to see more people that are combat vets from the recent wars that are able to actually get on screen and portray what they've seen there. And I know now, I know that they're going to, speaking of Band of Brothers and all that, I think that they're, uh, Helm and Spielberg's next one is they're going to do uh, an Air Force movie, you know, that's a follow-on from Band of Brothers in the Pacific. That's one yeah. I'm looking forward to that coming along whenever it does. Yeah, I, that's on my radar as well. I told my reps, I said, I don't know if they need any middle-aged men to play officers or something. But no, uh, Yeah, same here. I was like, whenever they start casting for that, I'm going to at least look into it. Well, wouldn't it be delightful if we both ended up landing something in that? Oh, hopefully, yeah, man. That'll be awesome. Hopefully yeah. I run into you. <laughs> When I was 24, I thought that working with Tom Hanks was going to change my life. And admittedly, it kind of did, but not in the way I would have expected. And in the same way that I am now older than Tom Hanks was when he fired me, each of these former child actors is now at least as old as Hanks was when he shared a role with them. David and Connor both had to grow up in the afterglow of their experiences, figure out who they were in a world where everyone associated them with the success of their respective films. As for Elijah, Radio Flyer wasn't his first big picture, and despite the box office failure of that film, it demonstrated to the industry that at age 10 he was more than ready to carry a film. After all, he wasn't hired to play young Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks was hired to play old Elijah Wood. It has now been 20 years since Band of Brothers, 27 since Forrest Gump, 29 since Radio Flyer, and 33 since Big. Added up, that's over a hundred years of lived experience between the four of us, post-working with Tom Hanks. A lot of ups and downs, collectively. The mountain does not end. We've learned to be okay with the journey. Put another way, there's a popular saying about how life is unpredictable. It's a metaphor. I believe it's candy-related. I hope I'm getting this right. Life is like a bag of jelly beans that you eat with your eyes closed so you can't predict the flavors. No, that's not... It doesn't sound right. Life is like a container filled with an assortment of sweets, and you eat them, and it's never clear which one you're about to eat. No, a box. A box... Life is a candy box, and it's all random candies, and you are never allowed to look on the bottom of the box, which shows you which candy is which. Life isn't like that. Life is like surprise candy. Life is like surprise candy. Sometimes good, sometimes not so good. 
blisters and ferris wheels You like how it feels Round and round till you lose yourself in the air All those complicated deals Your desperate appeals Calling out to a god you know isn't there So high as you fell, looking down on the tops of the trees, and all you can do is say, please, please, baby, please, 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 baby, please. Dead Eyes is a production of HeadGum Studios. It was created by me, Connor Ratliff. It's written by me, and it's mostly me that you hear talking, including now. The show is produced and edited by Harry Nelson and Mike Comite. Special thanks to my guests Elijah Wood, David Moscow, and Michael Connor Humphreys. Also thanks to Amy Mann for letting us use this song that's playing in the background. It's called Roller Coasters, and you can find it on her Grammy-winning album from 2017, Mental Illness. Go buy a copy at amyman.com. If you like Dead Eyes, please do all the things that podcasts tell you to do. Subscribe, rate, review, follow us on Twitter, at Dead Eyes Podcast, and talk about us nicely on social media. If you want to reach out, the email is deadeyespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about this show, especially if you are friends with Tom Hanks, who actually has another cinematic connection to Elijah Wood beyond Radio Flyer. They both starred in film adaptations of novels by Jonathan Safran Foer. Tom Hanks was in the 2011 movie Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, and a few years earlier, Elijah played the role of author Jonathan Safran Foer in the 2005 film Everything is Illuminated. If anyone ever decides to screen those two movies along with Radio Flyer, it would make a very intense triple bill. See you next time. Stay safe. Wear a mask. That was a HeadGum original. 